Put in those headphones and lace up those running shoes because you are listening to the fifth sign. This podcast is presented by Exercises Medicine UBC. Here are your hosts, Kyle Boyle and Reed Mitchell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Fifth Sign, presented by Exercises Medicine UBC, the podcast where we discuss exercise as a vital sign of health. My name is Kyle Boyle, and I'm back with my wingman, Reed Mitchell. How are you doing? Good. How about you? I'm not doing too bad. I actually just did our, our guest study. Uh, so we have Jesse Charlton here. He is a personal trainer, a CSCS, but he also wears multiple hats in this field of exercise medicine, which I find super interesting. He's also a uh, physiotherapy student combined with the PhD program as well, and he also just completed his master's in rehabilitation sciences. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thanks for having me. So we're going to dive into it as we start with all of our guests. How do you keep active? Uh, so I, I've done a number of sports throughout the years. Um, many of them have been kind of field team-based sports, but more recently it's um, transitioned more to the individual stuff. Okay. Um, so trail running is kind of the main piece that I do nowadays, uh, and I layer that with mountain biking and, and skiing and things like that. Nice. I heard you just did a trail running race the other the other week. How'd it go? Uh, I did. Um, yeah, it was part of the Coast Mountain Series. And uh, I survived it, which was fantastic. It was the nice. first time I had gone past uh, 19K. Um, that was about a 25, 26K run. Oh, that's impressive. Um, so, yeah, being 100 kilos and moving that far <laughs> is uh, pretty, pretty difficult sometimes. How, how recently have you gotten into trail running? Uh, about a year and a half, I started dabbling in it. Um, okay. We had a, a colleague in our lab that um, was into trail running ultra stuff, like 100-plus miles of running in one go. Um, which was really cool. Um, I have been dealing with a chronic hip issue for a number of years. And so I was looking for something other than weight training and Olympic weightlifting. And so I kind of moved into trail running as a uh, byproduct of being around uh, my colleague. And um, probably the last nine, 10 months, I've taken it a little more seriously and running, you know, three to five times a week and that sort of thing. Nice. And I guess in like, in regards to that hip injury, like, do you find that being physically active helps that or like what are your views as exercises as medicine um it can it was helpful it was helpful for my hip when I started running um the weight training uh made it worse and that's eventually why I ended up kind of deviating away from that as my main mode of exercise for about five years I was primarily Olympic weightlifting Mm -hmm. uh, powerlifting that sort of thing um and then the hip really started bothering me. And so unfortunately, strength and conditioning wasn't really doing much. And part of it is it's orthopedic. Um, it's not really one of those um, one of those injuries or conditions where you can just stretch through it. Um, and so I, I needed to find an alternative way to, to stay active and not be in pain most, uh, most days of the week. So, For sure. So as I mentioned, uh, kind of right off that intro there, is uh, you're a personal trainer, CSCS. Yep. Uh, so why don't we start by what is a CSCS, a condition... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, so CSCS is a Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist. Um, It's one of the certifications you can get through the NSCA, the National Strength Conditioning Association. Um, They're located down in Colorado in the States. And they're a big national body. Um, They're the ones who generally certify the uh, Div 1, Div 2 strength conditioning Mm -hmm. coaches um, uh, at the university and college levels. Um, So they have personal training certifications. They also have the Strength Conditioning Specialist um, certifications that are a little different and cover different topics and have different prerequisites to get into them. Uh, but uh, I went, I had the, the personal training 
uh, certification first. And then as I was in my senior year of my undergrad, I got the CSCS so I could transition more into athletic development, um, long-term athletic development, that sort of thing. Nice. And so how long have you been a personal trainer for? Yeah, so probably six years, um, going on seven years as a personal trainer, uh, closer to five and a half, I guess, as a um, strength conditioning specialist, at least as the certifications go. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, what's the what's the role of a personal trainer in exercises medicine, in your opinion? In my opinion, yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, personal trainers play a, a big role, but there seems to be a frequent um, crossing over of personal trainers into roles that they might not necessarily be equipped for. Um, uh, crossing over with physical therapists or chiros or uh, massage therapists. And we, we see this in gyms anecdotally quite often. Um, but I think that the primary role, in my view, for a personal trainer is guidance and empowerment for their, their trainees, um, whether it's from a medicine perspective as in somebody's had a chronic disease and or, or a condition or an injury and they've gone through a rehabil- rehabilitative process and now they're moving into return to play. Um, that's one direction is exercise as medicine. The, the other piece um, is just prophylactic, exercise in general to stave off disease and, and, and injuries and things like that. So I think the, the key part is guidance and empowerment for personal trainers um, as well as educating. Um, I've never been a fan of the personal training model where you get a client on and the entire goal is to make them dependent upon you mm-hmm. so they, they stay with you. Right. Um, I much prefer the goal of... Um, getting rid of your clientele. Okay. You want to bring them on, educate them, and then try to make them self-reliant and independent so they don't need you anymore. Um, right. And it's probably not the best business model, but I think it's the most uh, ethical um, way to go about it. It's probably the best way to change their behavior so that they stay active throughout life. That's And that's part of it is you'll get personal training or strength conditioning um, where you're dealing with performance and you have tight deadlines and seasons that you have to work through. But then you get the personal training side where you get a guy who's generally just wanting to be more fit. Um, and they come in and, and the the idea that you're trying to build with them is goals and, and pieces that they can integrate into their life to maintain activity um, and be healthy outside of the six hours, if you're lucky, that you get with them per week. Um, usually it's like two to three. So. Um, the, the primary component for a personal trainer is to try and develop and instill behaviors and tools for the person to actually um, integrate exercise into their life in a, in a meaningful way. And it's something you kind of touched on earlier on, but my next question kind of, I guess I'll start it with a little bit of a story. So I was actually in a kinesiology class here at UBC, and it was a chronic conditions class, and uh, <clears throat> the professor was distinguishing exercise physiologists from personal trainers to kinesiologists, et cetera, et cetera. And so he said, okay, so what do you need to be a personal trainer? And somebody raised their hand and yelled out a free weekend. Um, So it just kind of touches on what you were talking about before, where maybe some of them go outside of their scope of practice. So if I'm a weekend warrior or someone looking to get into, you know, getting a personal trainer for whatever reason, I I have a friend of mine who's training for an RCMP test. So he actually hired on a personal trainer to help him get fit for that. So if I'm looking for a personal trainer for whatever reason, what should I be looking for, whether it be credentials or red flags? Absolutely. I I think that's the golden question for somebody who wants to get into working with a personal trainer. Um, And there's a lot of factors at play that you kind of have to consider here. Um, 
the first most important component that I would suggest is be an active consumer. Um, you are looking to purchase a service and you need to understand everything that goes into that service and um, whether it's meaningful for you or not. Um, so what that means is you need to question the personal trainer. You need to ask them about their background, why they're doing it, um, other clients that they've had, everything that you can think of that would give you an idea of who they are as a person as well as a personal trainer. Then the next piece is you need to ask them for evidence, um, get clarification on questions that you have with them. Um, a lot of personal trainers who are successful um, are also great salesmen. And being a good salesman doesn't necessarily mean you're a good personal trainer. They can go hand in hand, but you need to be able to tease those two apart um, to understand what's best for you. Um, the next piece is you want to talk to previous clients. That's mm -hmm. really important. Ideally, clients who they don't work with anymore. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is you don't necessarily want to talk to somebody who's going to then go see that personal trainer the next day. Um, they might have a skewed opinion or they might not want to step on toes or, or offend their the trainer in any, any way. So you can talk to people who they're, they're not working with anymore. You can get a really good idea of what is, what's going on, how things work, how the personal trainer handles their uh, interactions and their programming and things like that. What would some immediate red flags be for somebody who's starting to train you? Um, absolutes. Okay. That's the, the big one that I see a lot is making absolute claims. So um, this is the best exercise for this. This is the only way you should do it. These sorts of phrases are um, common and uh, really, really good indicators that you're probably working with somebody who doesn't quite have a grasp on the concepts. And it doesn't mean malice. It doesn't mean um, that they are bad people or mm -hmm. bad trainers necessarily. It just means that they don't have a grasp of the... Um, the principles of personal training and fitness and exercise um, from a greater perspective. So that's really a good um, indicator. If you hear people with making absolute claims, it's probably something that you don't want to um, don't want to be be dealing with. Right. And uh, taking, I guess, taking somewhat of a step back for a second. Uh, what is like the process to get certified? Just for those people listening in who might be interested in getting into personal training and maybe touch on like the scope of practice you've briefly mentioned already. Yeah, so there's a lot of different routes into personal training or strength conditioning depending on the directive or, or, or the, um, the goal that you have. Um, if personal training is the primary goal, you can go through local organizations like the BCRPA, um, you can go through ACSM or CSEP, other national bodies, uh, NSCA of course, which is the direction I went. Um, and then strength conditioning, there's fewer options because it's, um, it's more of a specialized advanced certification. Um, so the NSCA has uh, some certifications. Now, if you want to go into personal training, you can go through local groups that have um, multi-week night course type structures where you do some sit-in lectures and some practical components. And unfortunately, quality can vary depending on who your lecturers are there. Um, then there's other situations like the NSCA where there's a large textbook and you buy the textbook and you teach yourself. You can go to conferences, you can go to uh, quizzes um, or, or other smaller lectures um, to help educate you. And then you take the test and boom, you're certified. Um, so there's pros and cons to both directions. Um, but the, the nice, the, the most important thing in my view in regards to where you go to get your certification 
is you need to look at the CEUs, the continuing education units um, in a given training paradigm or, or program. Um, that's where you get your value. So if you go to a program that has a really easy um, certification method, but their CEUs are, are terrible, um, that might not be the place you want to go because you're not going to get value from them over the years going forward. Um, that's one of the reasons why I stuck with the NSCAs. Their mm-hmm. CEUs are, are the best in the business, in my, in my opinion. Awesome. Um, now, thinking of a, a personal trainer and sort of their, their main role as an outsider, someone who isn't a personal trainer and has never had one, the first thing I think is strength and conditioning, uh, weight training, resistance training. So can you, can you touch on the resistance training and the benefits to One Health? For sure, yeah. Resistance training is... Um, one of those fantastic components that can sometimes be a boogeyman, but um, is very powerful. It's a big lever that you can pull for general health. Um, it's a big lever you can pull for performance, of course. Um, so w- when we're looking, for example, my, my field of research is primarily in um, older individuals. And one of the problems with older individuals is, of course, falls. Mm-hmm. So if we can develop stronger people later into life, primarily through their legs in, in this um, instance. We have stronger people, they can generate more power. They're likely able to catch themselves when a fall occurs, and, and that can be incredibly detrimental, if not, or incredibly important, if not life-saving um, in that instance. So for older folks, it can be very powerful in giving them functional independence, in, in being um, uh, able to undergo the activities they want to do, whether it's playing with their grandchildren or just saving themselves from a fall. Um, when it comes to people in college, it's huge for psychological factors. It's huge for um, social components, being in the gym with your friends. And then, of course, all of the benefits of developing muscles, better hormones, um, uh, better body fat ratios, things like that. It's, um, it's a fantastic mode to improve your, your performance in many many. All right, Jesse, I just wanted to know your opinion on who should be doing strength and conditioning training. Yeah, the, the easy answer is obviously pretty well everybody. Um, even people with different diseases, different conditions, young, healthy individuals, children, um, they, they should all be involved in strength conditioning. Uh, one thing that we've seen over the years, kind of the myth that's been perpetuated, is children strength conditioning and whether they should or not mm-hmm. and the, the fears of uh, develop, uh, delayed bone growth and things like that. Um, it's just not really supported in the literature. We it's pretty clear that children should have a movement practice. Uh, They don't need to be in the gym banging barbells with power lifters and stuff, but they should be moving. They should have formal movement practice. Um, Older individuals should have a movement practice. I I don't like physical activity. Um, I I think it's a a boogeyman term nowadays. Um, And I do enjoy the idea of strength conditioning, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to be in a gym um, doing bicep curls and squats and things like that. Um, so having a movement practice, whether it's yoga or cycling or um, working out, running, doesn't matter. Have a practice and, and try and improve at it. And I think everyone should be involved in that in some way. That's awesome. So you briefly mentioned a bit about your research. Uh, maybe we should go into that a bit further. Um, what type of research do you do? Uh, what lab are you in? Yeah, so currently I'm um, working on my PhD. Uh, I'm in the Motion Analysis and Biofeedback Lab um, at UBC. Um, and we are part of the Graduate Programs in Rehabilitation Science and the uh, Physical Therapy Department at UBC. 
That's awesome. So <clears throat> what I want to touch on now after uh, that introduction into your research and what you're doing. Uh, so as you mentioned, you're in the combined PhD PT program. Uh, you've just completed your master's. Um, so essentially what you are is an aspiring um, clinician scientist. Yeah. So what is that for people who are listening who might not know? Right. So a clinician scientist is somebody who has a clinical designation as well as some kind of advanced scientific degree. Um, and the, the primary goal for most clinician scientists, I would imagine, I can't speak for all, is to tie their research, um, their, their, the hard quantitative or qualitative research that they do, with um, clinical practice, and the two degrees can inform one another. So from my perspective, um, having an understanding of orthopedics and physical therapy can help me inform the research that I do on people with knee osteoarthritis. Um, and that's really the main goal of being a clinician scientist is I can blend the, the two hats that I wear um, to help inform and improve each independently. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> now that we've introduced you as wearing all these hats, personal trainer, uh, soon-to-be physiotherapist, uh, researcher, how has your views changed in this field of exercise and medicine as you progress through the field, as you get all these other designations? Yeah, it's... And has it reinforced anything as well? Sorry to cut you off there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a another fantastic question. Going through, going through your undergrad, you start to learn... A number of different components and people talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect and things like that and it's very real. Um, Which is for people who don't know. So the, the premise is that as time goes on the uh, perceived amount of knowledge that you have versus the actual amount of knowledge you have <laughs> changes and you can kind of um, get where, where I'm going with that but the idea is that in your undergrad you're learning all these new concepts and early on you feel like you have this fantastic grasp and part of that is because you're learning these simplified pieces um, of research and, and it all makes sense, it all blends together nicely, but what's really changed for me over the last, I guess, two and a half, three years um, has been that as I go further into this field, I start to realize more and more that we just don't know stuff. We, we feign to know, pretend like we know, but um, we really don't have an idea. We're kind of knitting ideas together and in our best best hopes. And that's been my main um, main shift in my focus um, for what I'm trying to understand and how I'm trying to learn things is that we, we don't have a solid idea, but we have a best guess. And it's all about trying to knit together the evidence that we have in research, as well as the kind of anecdotal um, practical outcomes that we see in the gym or uh, in communities and things like that. Awesome. And so do you think the, like all this evidence that you've learned or this knowledge you've gained um, has improved uh, your ability to be a personal trainer? Without question. Yeah, absolutely without question. Um, the, the biggest thing for a personal trainer or a strength coach is to um, respect the evidence. And it doesn't happen often. Um, and, and the evidence, again, doesn't necessarily have to be the stuff you get from scientific studies. But um, a large portion of that should at least give you the, the scaffold or the framework um, or, or the, the direction on the compass. And then you use the anecdotal evidence to kind of fine-tune. Um, and having an understanding of how scientific research goes, um, the, the process that goes into developing different questions and the limitations, more importantly, of all these different questions has really helped me um, be a more informed and uh, particular personal trainer in, in how I work with my clients. 
Um, as a aspiring clinician scientist, I was wondering if you could touch on the idea of knowledge translation. And the reason I bring that up is that's what we're trying to do here at the fifth sign is really be a bridge between maybe some of the research being done. And I, I do want to touch on your specifics of your research in a bit here. Um, but what we're trying to do is be the bridge between, you know, research and maybe a weekend warrior. So I know a clinician scientist is, you know, a huge, huge part of that. So I was wondering if you can touch on that. Yeah, certainly. Um, knowledge translation is the the biggest kind of elephant in the room when it comes to scientific research is we can generate all of this knowledge and put it out there, but if we put it out there in scientific studies that 10 people read, um, it's really not going to move the needle all that much. One of the pieces that I've, I've picked up recently um, with through working with a colleague um, is trying to get on social media a little more mm-hmm. and promote not just my own work, but um, the work of others, the, the, the pieces that I think will be important for other scientists. And that's kind of the level one knowledge translation is amongst scientists themselves. The piece that I think is a little more difficult and you guys are, are doing so well is trying to get that evidence and, and, and the, the knowledge in all of these brains down to the people who really need it and might not have the capacity or the access to get into um, these bodies of knowledge like uh, our, our scientific research and things mm-hmm. like that. So. Um, one of the, the biggest pieces is understanding how how you change the way you translate knowledge depending on the people that you're trying to reach. Um, as I mentioned briefly before, my, my research is primarily in older people who have orthopedic disease. How I translate knowledge to them is far different than how I translate knowledge as a personal trainer to possible clients or friends or that sort of population that's more uh, peers of mine. Can we maybe get some examples of how you would treat maybe someone uh, as a personal trainer in an older population to maybe someone who just wants to work out and look good? <laughs> sure, yeah. So the working out and look good is um, pretty simple. Um, do more. <laughs> move more. Um, you know, the, the common thing that we often hear is, oh, I, I want to lose fat at this yeah. place. You know, I've got the flabby arms and I want to get rid of the flabby arms. Or I've got the, the little uh, love handles and I want to get rid of those. So generally it's a combined process of talking about better eating habits, um, increasing your general activity, involving strength um, and hypertrophy type exercises because we know that um, increasing your muscle mass can be helpful in, in increasing your metabolism. Generally speaking, when somebody comes in and says, hey, I, I want to look better, yeah. I want to look good naked, that's the, <laughs> the common thing, right? Um, it's, it's not a very difficult piece. The, the more difficult component for individuals like that is how do we keep them adhered? Um, and not to jump back um, um, too quickly, but going back to, to what you are as a personal trainer, the, the empowerment, a component of that is trying to get somebody to... Um, integrate these ideas into their lives so they actually can do it without you cracking the whip all yeah. the time. Now, we deal with older individuals. Um, the paradigm changes a little bit. Um, you have to consider injuries, conditions. You know, you have people who have uh, knee replacements or uh, orthos- orthoscopic surgery on their shoulders or they're, you know, they have low back pain and things like that. So the, the list of contraindications and things that you might need to consider in your program um, becomes greater. And so you want to work often on uh, developing tolerance, um, developing or reducing kinesophobia, the, the, the fear of movement and, and moving. Um, that can be really helpful. Um, so the, the programs are generally the same. I, I 
personally, I program and I, I train quite vanilla. Um, I don't like fancy flamboyant exercises. I like barbells and dumbbells and bodyweight movements and um, jumping and bounding and things like that. So the, the way I program is relatively simple and relatively similar between a, a young individual around my age or an older individual who has a number of diseases. The, the key is that you just account for some of the limitations that older, older people might have. Uh, what you had just mentioned uh, in that last little bit was the idea of adherence. Hmm. I was wondering as a personal trainer, what are some of the tips and tricks to get somebody to you know, adhere to a strength and conditioning or general exercise or even just general movement program following their sessions with a personal trainer? Yeah, um, if I had a perfect answer, man, I'd be rich. <laughs> I, I, that's the, I think that's the general consensus. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, maybe some techniques you've tried, maybe things that haven't worked even. Sure. Because um, I think in research we have to realize sometimes negative results isn't a bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, I think the first line of defense is knowing your clients. Um, if, if you take a kind of sweeping broad brushstroke across all your clients and how you deal with um, developing adherence, you're not going to get very far with a number of people. So they have different motivations. Um, that leads me to the next part is uh, motivation is very fleeting. Um, you, you have interest and, and excitement about an idea. You're motivated, which is great. And that's often why people come to a personal trainer um, or even just a friend to try and help them get better at what they're doing or, or become more fit. Motivation is fleeting, but um, discipline is kind of the, the key component that will be everlasting. And so I, I caution often when I'm talking to other personal trainers um, who, are, who are coming up, um, caution them against trying to leverage motivation with their clients and help them understand that developing tools for discipline um, is likely to get you far better results and, and across a broader spectrum of of clients. So uh, discipline, I, I think, is probably the key, and developing the tools to develop discipline is, is the, the real challenge. Awesome. Um, so now I was just curious if you could touch on some of the research you're doing specifically in your lab. Certainly. So uh, my research is primarily with people who have knee osteoarthritis. So it's a degenerative disease of the knee, um, the cartilage, and, and other joint components start to, to wear away and, okay. and degrade over time. Um, and unfortunately, what we understand at this point is elevated um, joint loads, so the force on the knee um, seems to be kind of the main driving factor for why people get this disease and, and develop it over time. And this can include obesity um, or different alignment of the limbs, um, injury, people who have mm -hmm. um, like ACL injuries and have had those reconstructed or meniscectomies, things like that. Um, this can all kind of lead to knee osteoarthritis down the lane. And so my research focuses on trying to understand conservative treatments. Generally speaking, um, surgical interventions and pharmacological interventions are the main pathway for people with knee osteoarthritis, some kind of painkiller or anti-inflammatory, or a joint replacement. Now obviously, these have um, concerns for side effects, uh, long-term use of pharmacology is usually not a good thing. So we're trying to develop conservative treatments that avoid these two um, pathways and allow us to hopefully improve clinical outcomes like pain and, and daily function and things like that. So my research looks at conservative treatments, predominantly gait modification, so altering how people walk. Okay. 
and how we can use that as a tool to improve pain and, and function of people with osteoarthritis. Nice. And so you just finished your master's recently. Um, could you tell us what you did for your master's and give our audience the knowledge translation piece, just maybe explaining what you found? Yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, my, my master's thesis wasn't um, particularly easy to translate down to the uh, individual who has the osteoarthritis, but um, I'll give you kind of a, a general overview of, of what we did. So as I mentioned, uh, we look at conservative treatments, particularly gait modification. One of the ways that we can modify people's gait is quite simple. Um, we teach them to toe out or toe in. So we change their foot more like a, like a duck walk or more like pigeon-toed walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we do this is it alters the, the joint loading in the knee, which is good for the disease progression, but is also shown to improve pain and, and function and things like that in people in the osteoarthritis. So, so that's great. We know that it helps the knee, generally speaking. Right. What we don't know is what happens at other joints. So if we're going to take this idea of towing people out or towing them in um, when they walk, and we give it to a whole bunch of people, it's possible that other joints will get a little angry. There might be some pain at the ankle or the, the side of the hip or things like that. So the idea behind my thesis was to look at these different modifications, people with knee osteoarthritis, walking duck-footed, walking pigeon-toed, and then understand what's happening at the joints other than the knee. So we generally ignored the knee in this study, and we looked at, um, at the ankle and, and, and the rear foot, the, uh, the, the heel, effectively. And um, the purpose of this was to understand how joint loading changed, um, how the position of the bones changed, or estimations, at least, of that, um, and then also how the muscles react. One of the things that uh, we often see is we can change the external load, um, the, the load that is um, kind of kicked back on the body every time you take a step. Um, but there's also in- internal load. So when the, the muscles contract when you walk to move your leg, those also create compression across the joints, and, and that can be detrimental possibly to, um, to the disease. So we wanted to get a better understanding of all those factors um, when people duck, duck walk or, or, or pigeon toe walk. So staying on the topic with individuals with NEOA, um, I'm curious about the modes of exercise that would be appropriate for them. And I ask because I imagine high impact might not be the optimal, um, I guess, prescription for them. So would that be things like walking or running? Is that something they should avoid or am I off base here? Fantastic question. And it's one that we are trying to better understand um, as we speak right now. Um, so we recently did a uh, randomized controlled trial that lasted about four years. And the purpose of that was to understand how a walking program where people increase the amount of walking that they did in a, in a given week um, and a walking program as well as changing how they walk would impact joint function, uh, pain, things like that. What we found is when we get people to walk more, they feel better. And this is pretty consistent with some of the previous research where we have an increase in exercise, an increase in, in uh, physical activity is probably the better umbrella term. Um, we generally see improvements in pain and function. Um, so walking seems to be really good. Um, now, I think it's a bit of a, uh, an inverse U relationship. Mm-hmm. There's not enough activity is detrimental to the cartilage um, for various biochemical reasons. Um, and then 
too much activity is not very good for the cartilage for biomechanical reasons. And so there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle where enough activity seems to help augment the health of the cartilage, um, doesn't degrade it more. Um, so it, it's finding that point, and that's, that's mm -hmm. quite difficult. Um, more recently, uh, some of the colleagues in, in our lab, as well as our, our director, um, is conducting some research on running, um, mm -hmm. trying to understand how people with knee osteoarthritis um, can run and, and how that interacts with the cartilage that they have in their knee. Um, so we're using some MRI measures and things like that to get a better understanding. But generally speaking, the literature is, is mixed. Mm -hmm. We don't quite know if running is bad. Uh, we don't quite know if it's good. But um, we're hoping that some of our research going forward in this lab can kind of tease out those ideas. So I know it's not the research you specifically do in your lab, but I'm just wondering uh, your thoughts on some lower impact stuff like swimming or uh, maybe aerobics in a pool, cycling even. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lower impact stuff can be great too. Um, water running, um, cycling can be good. Sometimes the, the range of motion required for, for cycling activities, depending on how well the person has fit the bike or even if they um, just don't bother with adjusting the seat height in, in mm -hmm. the bike in the gym. Um, that can be bothersome for the knee. Um, I think the, the key take home here, and, and this goes for people who are, who are young and healthy and want to get into um, some type of physical activity and people who have bad knees or hips or what have you, um, you have to take into consideration where you are and the level of activity that is appropriate for you at that time and then slowly increase and be patient with those increases. Often what happens is people will come in and they will try and take on too much too soon and that will lead to burnout or it will lead to increases in pain, particularly in our NEOA populations. Um, so we want to slowly increase. The body's an amazing adap um, adaptation machine. So if we slowly increase and improve or, or um, elevate the amount of uh, stimulus we have from the exercise, um, it's often that the body can adapt, even under disease conditions. That's awesome. And we, uh, we actually just heard that you took a trip to China recently uh, to do some research. Could you explain to our audience what you did there and uh, what that research might lead to in the future? Certainly. So um, that was a preparatory component, I guess you could say, for some of my PhD research. Um, the team in China over um, at Shanghai Xiaotong University design some sensors that we are looking to use in some of my research. And these sensors uh, can embed inside of a shoe and they use accelerometry and, and gyroscopes and, and magnetometers to try and derive the position of the foot relative to the direction you're walking. So that leads back to my, my master's work where we were looking at uh, duck foot and pigeon toed type walking. These sensors allow us to measure these types of measures but out in the real world. Oh, wow. um, so we don't have to use our very expensive lab equipment that is generally inaccessible to most people um, who have knee osteoarthritis. So the idea is we can use these sensors to measure gait biomechanics outside of the lab and hopefully reach more people or at least be able to um, understand how people perform different gait modifications or just walk in general in the real world. That's awesome. I think that's super important considering... I mean, I think a big problem in research right now is a lot of what we do in a lab can't be replicated out in the real world. I think it's a big part of knowledge translation as well, just sort of how practical is what we're doing and producing in a lab. This is the final lab. Uh, 
All right, it is the final lap where we take one final lap around the table to get everyone's final thoughts. And this time we're going to throw to Reed first. Awesome. Uh, so for my final lap, I actually have a question for you, Jesse. Uh, what is the first step in probably many steps to become physically active? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a fantastic question. I think the, the first step for anybody is to find something that they enjoy, um, something they enjoy doing, and just go out and start doing it. Um, make it a habit. Now, if you want to get further into um, particularly strength conditioning or, or some kind of uh, movement practice, finding a practitioner who can teach you, like a personal trainer or strength coach, um, I think is the, the next step. Finding some, some professional help to help guide you and make the right decisions um, and develop a, a set of goals and a, a set of um, tools to, to reach your goals, I think is probably the, the first few steps that you want to take. Awesome. How about you, Kyle? Uh, I guess my final lap uh, is going to be, well, I just want to reiterate what you touched on before, is just the idea of understanding your scope of practice. I think it's super important um, I think maybe not enough people do it. Conversations I've had with some personal trainers in the past, um, it seems like in some ways they don't understand uh, sort of their limits and it can cause injury problems, um, also just create some bad habits, uh, lifelong bad habits. So I think it's really, really important. Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, based on, on what you just said, um, I think it's a very important component to think about as well, um, especially as a, a new personal trainer. Um, when you go and get a certification, that is simply a piece of paper that says you have a requisite amount of knowledge to do some stuff. Um, I think it is a very small piece of the pie when it comes to how much knowledge you actually need to be an effective personal trainer or strength coach. So self-education is so vital, I, I can't really emphasize it enough. Um, if you want to be a personal trainer, if you want to be a strength coach, you have to reach out and try and understand the scientific literature, as well as find people who are, are trusted professionals or trusted academics who are disseminating the knowledge um, that you can then go and, and interact with or, or at least read their work. Um, I think this is, it, it cannot be emphasized enough. It's really an important piece if you want to be a personal trainer. I think that's a great spot to close. So thank you again for coming on. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? You mentioned your social, you're into social media now. So yeah, so on, on Twitter it's at Jesse Charlton underscore. Um, don't forget that underscore on the end. Um, and that's really where I share most of my scientific, uh, strength conditioning, academic related uh, information. So it'd be a great place to connect with me. Fantastic. So uh, I am signing off. My name is Kyle Boyle. I am here with Reed, and I am reminding everyone that your gym membership does not end after the second week of January. Take care. If you like this podcast and want to listen to past or future episodes, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud under the heading The Fifth Sign. We will be posting a link on our website at eimc.sites.olt.ubc.ca and you can also find us on Facebook at EIMCUBC and Twitter with the handle EIMC underscore UBC. If you are interested in joining the movement and coming onto the show, you can follow me and send me a personal message on Twitter at HelloKBO, that's H-E-L-L-O-K-B-O.